Understand the procedure now? Just stop a few of their machines and radios and telephones and lawnmowers. Throw them into darkness for a few hours and then sit back and watch the pattern. They pick the most dangerous enemy they can find, and it's themselves. A little late comedy there from Ray Bradbury. This is William Briggs, and welcome uh, to our new show. It's 23 September 2009, coming to you via electrical transcription from high atop the GS Patton Building in the Upper East Side of New York City. This is a first and what's going to be, if there's any justice in the world, which there's not, a long line of uh, radio podcasts on subjects that'll be easier to tackle uh, through this medium rather than uh, in writing. Uh, I hope to come to you every Wednesday. This will be available on all the aggregators, such as iTunes and so forth. You're probably already listening on the website, but if you're not, uh, look up the keywords William Briggs. The subject today is the mind of a climate activist. I'm particularly interested in what drives these folks. Uh, I want to distinguish between them and climate scientists and politicians and the ordinary man on the street sort of fellow and see what makes the climate activists feel so strongly. So we'll cover that in some detail. We'll, we'll, we'll not finish it, of course. Uh, we don't have time for that kind of thing. Uh, but we can at least start. The format for these broadcasts uh, will be me talking directly to you, at least at first. I hope that uh, in the future, uh, by phone at the least, we can include some of my regular readers. I have quite a collection of very interesting people who uh, come from a wide variety of professions, some of them with fascinating jobs, and I think it would be fun for all of us to hear their voices. Now, I am from New York City, as I mentioned, and uh, because of that, I don't seem to... Uh, well, there goes one right there. Perhaps I'll leave that one in for you to hear. There's a constant stream uh, of noises from the street, from the rest of the apartment building that I'm in, from everywhere. Some of these fade into the background, but uh, and I'm going to try to eliminate some of those. I'm only a block and a half, uh, two blocks from New York Hospital. Uh, because of that, I'm on the street which the ambulances typically traverse. Uh, New York Hospital, if you've ever seen the Seinfeld show, is the hospital they always show, the entrance to it anyway. And, and noise, uh, we get so used to it, uh, unfortunately, that uh, we seek to drown it out. I don't know if New York City is different than other places, but here... There are a larger number of people, uh, it seems to me, who wear thinking suppression devices. These little uh, ear things, they pop in and blast music at uh, unintelligible levels inside their skulls and forces the rest of us to listen to them as well. This is uh, unfortunate. You can no longer get on a subway without hearing loud music coming at you from all directions. And I sort of long for a return to classical music. At least if these people were listening to something good, the rest of us wouldn't feel such a burden. Perhaps something classical like this. Ah, classical music. Nothing like it, right? Our subject today is the mind of the climate activist. We have to distinguish 
between the activists and the rest of the people. Obviously, as everybody knows, uh, particularly as readers of my blog know, climatology is an in thing. It's the hip thing. We'll talk more about that later. But beyond that, it seems to be a very pressing matter for some. Perhaps not as much as it used to, but uh, there's still a residual of it. I mention that because uh, the, the UN is in session. One thing the UN is doing, or at least uh, in conjunction with the UN, is a, a satellite of uh, conferences, most of them having to deal with climate change. Uh, for instance, last night, my son, who wrote a piece on this on the blog yesterday, attended an event called Jobs, Justice, and Climate Change. Apparently, this is a continuation of an event that took place earlier this year in March, I gather, in the UK. They're upset, uh, these people, somehow, for some reason. Uh, they view jobs and justice and climate as all as one. It's not clear exactly uh, their reasoning or their mechanisms. Well, we'll come to a little bit about their, their reasoning. But the mechanisms and, and so forth, uh, how concentrating on climate change is going to lead uh, to further justice and jobs is very curious indeed. It may give us the big clue when we see that uh, their statement our future, they say, depends on creating an economy based on fair distribution of wealth. And there's the, uh, not green flag, but uh, a red flag, certainly. And the red flag, they seem to want to fly, uh, despite the red being stained, if we can use a purple phrase, with blood of tens of millions. By this point, uh, communism has never lost its appeal. Besides the fair distribution of wealth, which presumably only they would be intelligent enough to administer, someone has to sit atop the uh, dais and take from those that have and hand out to those that do not. And of course, this is an arduous job and therefore should uh, be rewarded extraordinarily, so they claim, in, in abeyance of uh, the normal theory of equality for all. Well, all this stuff is tied together and that, that must be obvious. It's not comprehensible how they want decent jobs uh, for all and a low carbon future. You see, these people ask for jobs. If you want a job, you have to go to an employer. An employer is the person or persons who supply the jobs. And therefore, if we want jobs, we also must want employers. And if we want employers, we want people who have something that the people who want jobs do not. Uh, namely, either greater intelligence, a greater capital fund, or a combination of these, or perhaps uh, luck through geography uh, or accident of birth or something. But in any case, these are people who have something that others do not, and they're willing to give it out in shares to those who will do a job for them. Well, we can't have that and also equality and even distribution of wealth. Well, these are well-known complaints against uh, that style of life, so we needn't burden ourselves with those too much. And again, let's, uh, let, let's delve a little deeper and see what's going on with these people. Uh, one thing they had was a, a, uh, a film that debuted uh, called The Age of Stupid by a female called Fanny, or Franny rather, Armstrong. And it is a sort of, well, naturally it uses animation, and I wouldn't be surprised if puppets were in there uh, in live action of a man who is in the future looking back and wondering uh, what happened. Naturally, he is the only one left alive, and uh, the world has been destroyed, not by nuclear weapons this time, but by rampant 
renegade, out-of-control climate change. He's the only one left, and he wants to make a record. For who uh, is an interesting question. I don't know, but uh, he wants to call the people who, us, who lived in this time, stupid. Now, this film is uh, being debuted. It was debuted yesterday and the day before here in the city and elsewhere in the world. Uh, it also uh, debuted earlier in the year, I think, to coincide with the other uh, conference, uh, the Jobs, Justice, and Climate Conference that was held, I think, in, uh, in, in London or in Leicester Square. The film here was uh, held on a green carpet, get it, uh, using a solar-powered cinema. I, I do like to be the one to break it to these people, but everything on this planet is solar powered. Perhaps not as directly solar powered as a uh, as a solar cell, but it's solar powered nonetheless. Everything has been created by stars, uh, and our star supplies the energy for all our food and all our needs. Uh, so why it's more romantic to have something that's direct from the sun or at least less indirect i've never been able to figure out but i'm not certain that these people understand uh, the physics of the situation of how the sun operates how how the energy cycle on the planet works and so forth anyway a curious uh, bit of the film this is sort of fun the film they say was crowd Funded. Crowdfunding is a way to think about money that these people think eliminates capitalism. But think about this. Crowdfunding means they went out to the public and they sought money from the public. They wanted to raise something on the order of half a million pounds. And they did this by letting the people who gave money participate uh, indirectly in the movie. Not that they starred in the movie, you understand, but that they owned a small piece of it. This should remind you of something. It's a very common thing. Uh, it's what happens on the stock market when ordinary capitalists buy a portion of a company. Uh, they buy a share and they own part of it and they even have voting rights in it. It's not clear that the enlightened people who made the, uh, the Age of Stupid allowed the people who owned shares to actually vote about the direction of the film. But... Even if they had, I'm sure that they would have all been in agreement about the evils of modern day uh, life. Before we get to the immediate subject at hand, the mind of the climate activists themselves, I thought we'd hear a little bit uh, from Groucho Marx here, since in, in lieu of any kind of advertising, which I don't have, and uh, cognizant of the fact that nobody can listen to me for more than five minutes straight, and you've already, if you've gone this far, done twice that. So we'll break it up a little bit here with a bit of Groucho Marx. Here he is. You're a very pretty girl, you know. Thank you. Did you know that? Oh, I've heard it. <laughs> to be honest. You don't have to be honest with me, you know. <laughs> I don't propose to be honest with you. <laughs> what are you taking in college besides Bob? Uh, uh... I'm taking a major in medicine. You're taking a major in, in medicine, huh? Is your husband aware of this? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean a major like her. <laughs> You're taking him for everything he's got? Just... No, it's the line of study you pursue in order to get your degree. You pursue the major. <laughs> Who are you taking in college, Bob? The lieutenant in the wax? <laughs> no, I, I'm studying law. Oh, well, I don't blame you. She's going to carry on with the first major. <laughs> At least you'll be able to sue the guy. <laughs> Let me hear you talk like a lawyer. I mean, give me some shice to talk. <laughs> We don't talk shyster, right? I can give you some, uh... You don't talk shyster talk? Huh? No, we don't talk. We don't get any of my business. Huh? We have terms such as 
Habeas corpus. No contender. No what contender. You knew her well, eh? <laughs> no, no, no. A little Spanish girl. Well, I wonder where she is tonight. No, no contender actually means... There's what no, does it mean? It means there's no, no fight, there's no contest. That's Nola, all right. <laughs> That clip is from uh, his very well-known show, You Bet Your Life. That was from the television, one of the television episodes. You should find these DVDs probably in dollar stores and the like. Uh, buy them. They're well worth it. Uh, even better, if you can find them online, is the or are the radio episodes. These reveal Groucho Marx as being one of the top wits of our century. He he needs an audience to feed off of, you'll, you'll be able to quickly tell, but uh, nobody, no one comes up with a better witticism than he does. Okay, now let's think about what a climate activist is. Let's think first in terms of a scientist. Uh, we have scientists, climate scientists, meteorologists, physicists, computer scientists, and the like, who are engaged at the very basic level of trying to find out the operations of the atmosphere. And the atmosphere includes all the stuff that's near the ground and all the stuff that extends outward in space even to the sun. All of these are very complex processes. A large number, by no means all, of these scientists have created a suite of models that seem to show that humans have a direct influence on climate. This in itself is not in the least surprising. It is a trivial fact that humans influence the climate. No one has ever disputed this. Or no one should dispute this. It is only a question of how much we influence the climate. And if those effects are harmful or they're beneficial. And if they're harmful, can they be mitigated? And if they're beneficial, can they be exacerbated? But nobody should ever dispute the fact that humans do influence the climate. Every species, every inert object, in effect, uh, influences the climate, most of them trivially. But it seems that humans, particularly through industrialization and the injection of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, do influence the climate. The Scientists that make these pronouncements are acting quite rational. Uh, after all, many of the models of the type that they use are being used and have been used and have made reasonable and proper and correct forecasts. And the models that they have in front of them are making forecasts and they seem to show that the temperature will increase and it will increase because of human activity. It's very rational, therefore, for these scientists to come to the public, to come to politicians and so forth and say, look, Look what we have here. Um, what can we do about it? So we shouldn't fault the scientists for this. I mean, science, some scientists, namely Dr. X, go further and lapse into activism, and that's, uh, that's another point. But the scientists themselves are acting quite rationally. If they continue to act rationally, they'll also know that the models of, of the type that they're using have not always worked. Uh, and the models that they have in front of them there is no indication that they're working now. They work to the extent that they can recreate past climates, but to be able to predict future ones is the key question. And there's no evidence that that is true right now, except for the indirect evidence that models of a similar sort, name, namely meteorological ones, have made correct forecasts. In other words, these models are fallible. They might not be telling us uh, what is so. And the scientists reasonable scientists, and most of them are, 99.9% .9 of them are, will attach to their forecast some measure of uncertainty, some indication that these things are failable. So this is fine. The scientist is acting rationally. 
Next in line is the politician. The politician, I think, is also acting rationally. He's taking information from the scientist that tells him, unless we modify our uh, industrial behavior, uh, certain consequences are going to occur. The politician has used information from scientists in the past, and that information has turned out to be useful and correct or helpful at the very least. Plus which the politician doesn't know and can't know as much as the scientist does about his uh, field of expertise. So the politician is even acting rationally. And the media is sort of a, a go-between, an intermediary between the scientist and the politician and the rest of common man. Most people uh, receive their climate information through uh, regular television broadcasts, uh, the newspaper and so forth. A few seek it out on the web and learn some more. But most people are content to let uh, the experts, the scientists, and the politicians deal with the problem, if it is a problem, and uh, are content well enough to leave it alone to think about their own lives, which is also rational, because they understand that they cannot understand uh, what the climate is all about. And then we come to the activist. Now, the activist, most of them anyway, is an ordinary citizen who has heard the same pronouncements from the scientist and the politician that his neighbor has, but decides to let them to let these pronouncements bother him extraordinarily. This is the key point. Why is that the case? Because think about this. There is no way the climate activist can understand what's going on and understand the uncertainties and the probabilities and so forth about climate models. In order to do that, you first need to understand calculus. You need to understand differential equations, partial differential equations, discretizations, you need to understand heat physics. You need to understand the equations of motion. You need to understand the chemistry, the chemical interactions. You need to understand what, uh, what particular photons do as they're coming through the atmosphere. You need to understand cloud physics. You need to understand sigma levels. You need to understand the omega equation. You need to understand model assimilation. You need to understand model tuning. There's no way. Kindly speak English and drop the vernacular. Okay, okay, all right. So uh, the whole point of this is is that climate models are extraordinarily complex, and each part of them has uncertainty attached to them. And all of these uncertainties add up, at least linearly, if not multiplicatively. So at the end, you're left with a pronouncement that is, at best, only unsure of itself. But the climate activist doesn't see that. They take the forecast that the temperature might increase, and they view this with wide-eyed alarm which is probably the best way to say it. And they call the rest of the people who do not share their beliefs foolish. And this is what we want to understand. How do they come to this point? Because if they can't understand the physics, and they don't, what is it that's driving them? It can't be the ordinary forecasts that, uh, that arise from these things because they're not that terrifying. If you did understand the physics and the biology and so forth, you would not necessarily... You, you could talk yourself into a position that things are going to be dire, but you must accompany that with some healthy dose of skepticism and uncertainty. But the climate activists goes further south. They, they believe these things faithfully. And so what must underlie all of this is a desire, I think, a desire that humankind is disrupting nature. And that if it weren't for humankind, nature would be a sort of paradise. This is a religious belief. It doesn't have, it's true, a god, uh, or at least a visible god, uh, although some versions of it do, uh, in Lovelock's Gaia theory. But it is a religion just the same. And this has been spoken about many times before. 
There is a pristine state of nature before man arrives, and with the arrival of man comes a fall in sin, and this sin can only be washed away with proper application of redistribution of wealth, apparently, or whatever other pronouncements or prescriptions these people call for. Now, married to this is the activist's firm conviction of moral superiority. Not just moral superiority, but intellectual superiority as well. It is now in enlightened man uh, de rigueur for you to believe whatever the rest of the group believes. And for some reason, it's attached itself to climate change right now. And that makes it easier for climate activists to flourish. I mean, many groups out there support climate activism. Greenpeace, for instance, wants you to join and become, they say, a climate activist. And they take it a step further. This gives us some more insight. They say that those who are not activists are engaged in environmental crimes. So the first step in becoming, or rather the first step in an activity becoming a criminal is at first be immoral and climate behavior, you know, existing, living, breathing, walking, eating, is seen as these people to be immoral. And the next step, of course, is to make it illegal or to have it so that it is at least regulated. Uh, what you eat, what you drink, how you drive, what you do would be under the under the sure jurisdiction uh, of a few who in their minds are expert enough to be able to tell us what the proper way of living is. I left out a point earlier I wanted to get to. It's not only that there's uncertainties in these climate models. There are. There's plenty of uncertainties in the climate models. The problem becomes that these models in themselves are not that interesting. The models might say, okay, well, the temperature over the next 50 years is going to, on average, across the globe, day and night, increase by a half a degree, one degree Celsius. That uh, one degree Celsius uh, increase is meaningless by itself. It doesn't mean anything. You have to marry that to what the temperature itself affects. Uh, does the temperature affect crops? It does. Do crops affect humans? They do. Both through the animals that we feed on it and the animals we eat and the crops we eat ourselves. So uh, the climate, of course, will affect our food supply. Before people became interested in, in climatology and so forth, it was generally thought that a warmer, more, more carbon dioxide rich atmosphere uh, would lead to uh, greater production in uh, crops. But after the fact, people tried to find negative effects that might, uh, that might occur. And this is what we've seen. We see people take the results of climate models, which we must always remember are themselves error prone, or at least uncertain and feed them into their models, most of them mere speculations or statistical at best, and then ask questions about what will happen to things that are affected by the climate. So it's not the global warming that's important, it's what the global warming, or rather what climate affects that's important to humans. Most of these papers are statistical, and I've looked at a few of them uh, in terms of the statistics, and most of them are appalling at best. And it seems that there's a bandwagon effect here. There's no easier way now in science uh, to get a paper than to discuss what global warming might cause. I looked at this uh, last week when I looked at an emergency medicine paper 
that sort of indicated uh, disease rates were going to, certain disease rates were going to skyrocket and then more money and study were needed by emergency departments. Well, this is a common conclusion of all of these papers. Uh, the particular field might be Legionnaire's disease or an increase in insects or the polar bears might suffer or animals such as deer uh, might go hungry or, or whatever. The point is that the conclusion is inevitably that uh, more research is needed and more funding in the particular area is needed and more money therefore should go to the authors of these papers in the form of research grants and so forth. Now I don't blame them for this. This is the way the game is played. This is the only way to get tenure is to publish these kinds of papers. And it's not the first time that it's happened in science incidentally. I mean uh, back a uh, hundred years ago it was rays. It was every kind of ray being discovered and we had uh, N-rays and and so forth and other mysterious things so you know the, these things do occur and that's okay uh, you know I mean that's part of the the human folly and the human comedy but when these things are taken as absolutely certain by an activist and then touted as such the rest of us suffer and when we only have one or two activists making these sort of pronouncements it's not a problem either it's when we have a growing surge of these activists that all of a sudden the politicians uh, begin to pay attention. And when they begin to pay attention, they like nothing better than to create new laws, new bureaucracies, new regulations, new taxes, new ways to, to constrain our behaviors and increase their power. And that is the only way that these activists will be satisfied is if more of this sort of thing happens. And that's the strange thing. We come back to... Now, the worst kind of activist is a celebrity activist, uh, usually a movie star. Now, these are people who are told where to stand, what to wear, how to stand, how to gesture, what looks they should have on their face, and they're given the exact words there to read, and they do this very well. And for some reason, because they do this very well, this puts them in a superior position in our culture that they are able to opine on any matters whatsoever. So it's always seen as quite a coup for an activist firm to garner a celebrity uh, to become their voice because they do the voices very well. They're just not very bright in what they're saying, on average. There are always exceptions, of course. But uh, celebrity activism is probably the worst and the most tiresome. Activism itself is a symptom of two things, democracy and enlightenment thinking. Democracy itself is Democracy is something we're stuck with until something else better comes along. And what that is, I don't know. Democracies are prone to periods of madness. And we talked about this on the blog as well. It's not the first time that people have lost their minds about a particular subject. Temperance was the first in recent memory. Uh, smoking seems to be going along that line right now. It remains to be seen whether there will appear a constitutional amendment making tobacco illegal as alcohol once was. And who knows where global warming activism will lead us. These things usually have a limited shelf life. How many years of failed forecasts will we need before activists, climate activists, give up and move to something else? That's an interesting question. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, my imagination is many. Uh, once you get hold of these sort of things, you really need for the people. It becomes a consuming passion. And the more it becomes a consuming passion, the more difficult it becomes to admit that you're wrong. And the more that you have to devote yourself to the cause, you're almost always unwilling to give it up. And what usually happens is the older leaders of the, of the field start dying off. 
And once they start dying off, the younger ones are less beholden and they start quieting. Uh, only really to look for something else to turn to and to become active about. Now what that's going to be, I have no idea. The enlightenment part of the, of the story is another thing. And that's a very interesting question. And its principles of equality, fraternity, and brotherhood are in large part responsible for many of the other ills uh, from which we suffer. Equality seems to be uh, much on the minds of climate activists, although I suppose uh, if we want to look at it in a positive light, they're out for the brotherhood of man as well. They are certainly nothing positive to say about liberty. Liberty, of course, is the best of these three Enlightenment goals, and it's the one that must suffer if activists are able to control a large part of the population. Control, after all, is uh, taking away of liberty. And there's no other way to, to put a shine on that. And so the people who most loudly cry for liberty, at least personal liberty, at least a personal responsibility, which is what they equate liberty with usually, are the ones who most want to restrict other people's freedoms. This is usually in the form of behavior, but it has lately come to uh, encompass even speech and other subtler forms of, of rule. Now, we don't have time to talk about the Enlightenment today. Uh, we'll certainly come to that in time. There is a, a lot we could say about the Enlightenment and uh, what it means about uh, the ideal form of government and how that can be realized, what it means to our culture, what it means to us, what, what truth is, uh, what statistics can tell us about that, and, and so forth. I apologize for some of the choppy nature of this broadcast it's my first try but i hope that uh, you leave me a lot of comments and we'll try it again next week doc take us home i've got the world on a string sitting on a rainbow i've got the string around my finger what a world what a life i'm in love I've got a song that I sing I can make the ring grow Every time I move my finger Look at me I'm